Amen. What an awesome song for this morning, amen? I'm going to have to get really close to you guys in the front row. I apologize. You're in the splash zone, just so you know. So there's certain places in the church you just don't ever want to sit. And in the Baptist church, it's in the front row, just saying. Because Baptists, we like to communicate through liquid communication. So just... That's right. Yeah, we baptize whether you want to be or not. It's happening. It's coming on. That was a good one. I like that. All right. If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, so excited to hear with us today again. Uh, we are in the third week of our series uh, entitled Conversations with God. And we've been talking now for three weeks about uh, what would God say to us about some key areas uh, in our life and in our minds, our hearts, our thoughts. And uh, uh, this morning we're going to continue that series. And uh, we've talked a lot uh, over the last couple of weeks about, first of all, faith. What would God want us to know about faith? And we discovered in that first week that faith, our faith is truly all about him, right? Like your faith is not really about you. Uh, your faith in God isn't about what God gives you or does for you. Your faith in God is in who God is and what God is and his character and in his, his love for you and his grace. And yes, we're, we're, we're beneficiaries, beneficiaries of that grace, but we are not praising God this morning because he gives us stuff, right? We're praising God this morning because he is God and he's worthy of it, right? Uh, and so we talked about faith. We talked about that your faith is not about you. It's about him because he gifts it to you. He expects it to grow in your life. He expects your faith to grow in him. And he's going to allow things into your life to test that faith, to prove that faith. And that's all good because it's going to produce fruit in our lives. Last week, we talked about this idea of not just faith, but also about giving. And I said it last week. It's not so much that God wants or needs your money because God doesn't need your money. That's not why we give to the Lord because you know, he needs it and he's, he's begging us for it. We give to the Lord because he's given it to us. And we're responding in faith and saying, God, in a, in a response to what you've gifted me with, I want to give back to you as an offering of my worship. Uh, I, we talked about it all last week. So get the CD or you can get it on the app if you're curious on that. Um, we explained all of the details about tithing, what tithing looks like for the New Testament church, and what we really are allowing to limit us in our giving if we're not careful. And so we talked all about that last week. But this morning, I want to ask us to really consider what would God want us to know about our motives, about our motives. And I heard an author say, if you want to get a room really, really quiet, start asking people why they do what they do. And you'll find out they'll get really quiet really fast. And so we're going to talk about this morning. We're talking about motives. Before we do, I do want to also say this um, again. You are not going to offend anybody. And if somebody's here and gets offended by this, I'm sorry, I'm giving him permission to do so. There's a jug of water back here. We actually ran out of the cold bottled water. So some of you probably want water of any kind. But there is actually cold water in that blue... Like, igloo cooler back here there's some cups if you at all during any point of the service are like man i really need something to drink feel free to go back there grab a cup get something to drink for those of you in the sun man there is a crown in heaven for you that are sweltering out there us in the shade we we got it a little tough man we're praying for you guys though um you guys are true believers out there um but no uh, obviously feel free to do that as well so if you have a bible again we're going to go to first Thessalonians in just a moment here but before we get there i want us to understand the bible has much to say about this idea of motive. So what is a motive? A motive is the underlying reason for any action. A motive is the underlying reason for any action. Basically, this is the why behind the what. This is the why behind the what. In today's world, the why can be any number of reasons, and maybe you can connect with one of these, depending on the what you're trying to accomplish. 
Our motive for doing well in school may be to get into a good college when you get older, uh, to get a scholarship so you don't have to pay for that college and the college will pay you to come there. So maybe that's why you're wanting to get good grades or you're just getting good grades or trying to just not to get in trouble at home. Amen. Anyone else be honest enough to admit when you were a kid, your motivation was not so much, I can't wait to get into Harvard. It's, I don't want to get grounded when I get home for failing this class. Anyone willing to testify and say, that was me. That's why you really did well in school or tried to. The rest of y'all, you really love school that much. You just wanted to get a good grade, right? You're like, no, the grade is a reward in itself. You're lying, okay? Don't do that. I know we're outside of the church, but this is still the church, okay? So you got to be on guard against those things. Um, for some, our motive for doing well at work Maybe just to be a good employee, which I'm sure all of us, that's the majority. You just love your business and your company so much. You want to make them as much money as possible. So you work as diligently as possible, right? You just want to be a good employee. For some, maybe you're working really, really hard at your job to get a raise. You just really want that extra money and you know you're not going to get it unless you do, uh, you get a raise for working well. Uh, maybe it's just do good enough to not get fired. Some of us may be in that category. Right? Like, I don't really like my business, my job, my company, but I like a paycheck. So this is going to get me not fired, so I'm going to work as hard as I need to to do just as enough to not get in trouble at work. And so the point is, we have many reasons for why we do what we do. Some of them in our culture are good, some are bad. And we're going to kind of unpack that this morning. Because I believe as a follower of Christ, we have a foundational why that everything else is built upon. As a follower of Christ, you have a foundational why behind every one of your what's. Every what you want to accomplish in this world. Ooh. TJ's going to take care of that for us there, yeah. Keith and I put up the tent, so pray that doesn't come down anytime soon. to love it. Um, there is a foundational why behind every one of our what's, if you will. In fact, Jesus spent three chapters in the book of Matthew preaching the Sermon on the Mount. I should probably just wait until he's done because everyone's, TJ's so interesting to watch. He's just mesmerized by TJ. If it blows away again, yeah, go ahead. No, give him a hand. Yeah. All right. Now that that silliness is over with. And the wind blows. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I want to think about this because in the book of Matthew, Jesus spent three chapters preaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And all throughout that message, if you really read it, he emphasized the heart behind the doing. He talked about the why behind the what. Jesus was more concerned and is more concerned with why you do what you do so much more than what you do. Let me say that again. Jesus is more concerned with why you do what you do much more than he is what you do. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't care what we do because we know, we understand from scripture that he does specifically say, these are things you should not be doing as a follower of Christ. But the key in that is, why am I not doing those things? Why am I choosing to not give into this sin or that sin? An example of that would be in Matthew chapter six, verse one. I know I told you to go to first Thessalonians. I'm gonna get there in just a moment. But uh, we kind of opened up every one of these talks with specific words from Jesus about these things. And so Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. In fact, Jesus would often in the gospel speak to the issue of religious, the religious doing all the right things on the outside, but being dead on the inside. Basically, it was all a show. 
A great reference to that is Luke chapter 11. We studied a couple weeks ago on Sunday night. We talked about when Jesus said, you're like tombs or sepulchers. You, you look really, really good on the outside. And man, you go to the marketplace and everybody praises you and they talk about how awesome you are. But inside, you're dead, he says. And that's the idea that we need to understand that he talks about this idea of what's going on in your heart and in your motives is much more important than what you do on the outside. So I want to walk this out and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. It says this, but as we were allowed to be put in trust with the gospel. Now, that's a very cool part of the verse. We're not going to camp there, but, but think about what Paul's saying there. He says, listen, uh, in verse, what did I say, verse 4, but as we were allowed of God. Paul's saying, man, it's a gift that not only we've received the gospel, but we've been gifted the ability to go tell others the gospel. And I don't know if a lot of Christians see it as a gift. I think a lot of Christians think I'm obligated. I feel guilty. I have to go preach the gospel. I feel bad if I don't. Man, it is a gift. Paul says it is a blessing that you've been gifted with the gospel in order to share it. But he goes on to say this, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tries our hearts. Another translation says the end of the verse this way, our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of the hearts. I mean, God is very concerned with what we do. Once we receive the gospel, our motivation for this life changes from the momentary reward of doing what is good or right to an eternal reward of honoring and obeying the one that saved us. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you have a huge foundational why. It is, I'm going to live my life by his grace as he's given me the ability to do so. Again, by his grace and strength in me. We talked about it. My faith in him is not in me. Right? There's this movement, even in the church, to emphasize you and how important you are, and you're the key, and you're the key. We said it a couple weeks ago when I talked about the Bible. Who's the hero of the Word of God? Jesus Christ or God, however you want to look at it. That's the hero. You're not the hero in this book. And I'll say it again. In David and Goliath, you're not David. So many Christians are like, oh, I'm David, going to conquer a giant. No, you're the Israelites cowering in the corner. And if you were there, that's right where you would be. Jesus is the representation we see in David. So we got to remember this. Listen, your faith, not about you. Your giving, that you give a gift, it's not about you. And your motives for why you do what you do, it doesn't start and center in you. It's in Christ. And so we talk about this idea. Something is like bugging the mess out of me over here. Back off me. Okay. Somebody had off. I might need to borrow that in a minute. Um. Once we receive, no, I'm just teasing. I really don't need that. It's all right. Um, once we receive this gospel, we need to understand our motivations matter. So I want to walk this out just real quick. A couple things from that verse. If our purpose is to please God and not man, and he alone examines the motives of our heart, I want to kind of look at that in reverse. First, I want to talk about that God examines our motives. We are driven by many things in this world. Again, and often some of them are negative. Pride, anger, revenge, a sense of entitlement. Man, that's a big one. A sense of entitlement. No, I deserve this. I said it a couple weeks ago. If you walk into your marriage thinking it's all about you, you're going to have a sense of entitlement in your marriage. You think your spouse is there for you. They're not there for you. They live and breathe and exist as a follower of Christ for him. And you just get to walk together through this life and encourage each other and be there for each other. But your marriage isn't even about you. And I can tell you something. It's so freeing when you realize that. And you stop putting all these unrealistic expectations on your spouse. You want to see your spouse fail? Put expectations on them they can never accomplish. And we do that to each other all the time. When you walk in your house and you're like, why isn't my dinner ready? 
That's because you think it's all about you. You have a sense of entitlement. That's why you're motivated to go to your spouse and be like, hey, where's the food? First of all, be very careful there. I said this a couple weeks ago. You better say that and then duck, okay? Where's the food? I'm just kidding, okay? Because if, if your wife's like my mom was, there was none of that. She's like, oh, what's that? You can have a peanut butter sandwich. Good night. Have a good night, okay? This idea here that we have to understand we are driven by so many things, pride, anger, revenge, a sense of entitlement, or the desire for approval can all be the catalysts for some of our actions. In reality, our culture is so image-driven. Often our culture is more concerned with their image than their character. God is more concerned with your character. Character is displayed in our motives. Why did you give that gift to that person? Was it because you just genuinely wanted to be loving and giving, or did you expect a gift back? Why did you give that gift? Why did you help that friend with that situation? So they would praise you and honor you, or because you could reflect it all to God? Why did you treat your wife or your husband that way? Why did you buy them that nice gift? So they'll buy you a nice gift, or did you just want to be loving and kind? These ideas, we have to walk this out. How about why did you get mad at that person at work? Why are you mad at that neighbor? Why are you angry with them? If we're not careful, a lot of these things can overwhelm us and they're leading us into unhealthy and destructive actions. See, we are driven by many things, but we must not be driven by what the world is driven by. So what does God see in your motives? Here's the reality, and it should bring a little bit of concern to you. No matter how mature you think you are in Christ, this simplistic point and this truth should make us kind of stop and think, man, you know, God sees your heart right now. God sees your motives right now. It's as clear as day to him, and he sees them. He can read them. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, he opens us up to the very deepest part of us. He sees your heart. He sees your motives. And what is most shocking to me about that is even though he sees the pride, the anger, the selfishness, he still loves you more than you can imagine. He sees the truest you, the uncovered, unhidden you, and he still says, oh, no, 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 I still love you this much. I still gave my life for you on that cross. The truth is we are unable to operate with pure motives apart from Christ. You are unable to operate with pure motives apart from Christ. However, in Christ, we have the spirit of God that we are able to walk in the spirit and we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh or the action of an impure motive. So if God examines our motives, stop and ask, what does he see in you right now? What's your motivation for what you do, what you do, why you do? What's the why behind the what? And I'm honest, we have to be real about this because, man, we can kind of pretend like everything's good, but if we're not careful, our motives can get very corrupted. So because he sees and examines our motives, the second point of that verse is that we need to let our motives please God. Any motivation that originates in our sinful flesh is not pleasing to God, period. While we get this in the area of sin, we understand that if I sin in a certain way, that's not pleasing to God. We understand this, but I believe that some fall into impure motives even in service and worship to him. This is true in Christianity as well as other religious activities. The Bible is clear that our motives in worship of him must be pure as well. We see examples in the Bible just a few examples that we see in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. We see examples where people preached and ministered with impure motives. Philippians chapter 1, verse 17. We see where people could give with wrong motives. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. We see where people prayed with the wrong motives. James chapter 4, verse 3. 
By the way, just a quick reminder, God will not say yes to every one of your prayers. We have this mindset that as a Christian, now God has to do whatever I want. Again, wow, who's at the center of that prayer life? James says, hey, you pray for something because you want it for your lust to consume it. I'm not hearing that. What does 1 Peter say? Hey, husbands, treat your wives with grace or what may happen, your very prayers might be hindered. Now, we can actually pray with impure motives if we're not on guard and allowing God to refine our hearts. People can even fast with wrong motives. A great example of this, and I encourage you to read the whole chapter, Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 14. Man, read that text. These people were actually fasting and doing all these religious things, and God looks at them and says, man, you're, you like coming to me for external things. You like coming and looking very religious, but how about this kind of a fast? Meet the needs of the poor. Love one another. Surrender everything to me. That's the kind of fast I really want. But they were just going through these religious activities. The people in Isaiah 58, as well as many others, were all about religion and experiencing God on the outside, but not very interested in a one-on-one time with God. They were busy working for God, but not connecting with that God. (coughs) Even as Christians, we must constantly evaluate our own motives because our hearts are naturally deceitful. This means we must be willing to be honest with ourselves about why we are choosing a certain action. But let me encourage you, this is not a negative. It's never a negative to evaluate what's going on in here or allow rather God to evaluate what's going on in here. What does David say? Lord, search me and try me. Man, test me and prove me. Why? To see if there be any wicked way in me. What was the point of that? To remove that so more of me can be connected with you. So more of your presence can be experienced in my life. It is never a negative. Only when we evaluate our true motives will we discover the joy that comes from accomplishing an action, not for our glory, but his glory. A God-pleasing motive leads to a God-pleasing action. When we abide in Christ and allow him to change our hearts and minds, our desires and motives will begin to change, which leads to God-pleasing actions. We have said it the last two weeks that everything we are and everything we live is for his glory and honor. This starts inside, not outside. It starts on the inside with evaluating who we are in Christ. I want to be really practical this morning. I want to give some questions to you guys to think about to maybe put some meat to this and give some more idea of what we're talking about. Just some simple questions, seven questions. You don't need to write them down. If you want them later, let me know. I'll give them to you. Obviously, this will be available on the app and whatnot, but but let me know if you want these questions. But listen to these and really start thinking through, God, stop being surface. God, I don't want to be surface anymore in my walk with you. I want to be genuine and honest and real. And I want you to be the point of this life. First question, if no one ever knows what I'm doing, I mean giving, serving, and sacrificing. If no one ever knows what I'm doing, would I still do it? If no one ever knows what I gave or how I sacrificed or how I served, would you still do it? If there was no visible payoff for doing this, would I still do it? If there was no visible, meaning no evident result that I see instantly or even in time, would I still do it? Would I joyfully take a lesser position if God asked me to? Am I doing this for the praise of others or how it makes me feel? Am I the center of this? Verse number five, if I had to suffer for continuing what God has called me to do, would I continue? If I had to suffer for continuing what God has called me to do, would I continue? That suffering can be various things. Now, our brothers and sisters overseas are suffering in 
serious ways. Physical harm is being brought to them. You may suffer in different ways, different forms of persecution, but it's still suffering to some degree. If those whom I am serving never show gratitude or repay me in any way, will I still do it? Do I judge my success or failure based upon my faithfulness to what God has asked me to do or how I compare with others? Man, can we just stop for a second and look at that one? Do I judge my success or failure based upon my faithfulness to what God has asked me to do or how I compare with others? And what is my why behind the what? The whole point of today, if I could boil this down, would be to look inside and ask yourself why you do this or that. And then ask, is your motive driven with an eternal perspective? Do you have an eternal perspective on your whys? Let me give you an example. Husbands, why should you love your wife as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her? Why should you do that? Because you have an eternal perspective on this is for his glory. This is for, for his praise. And one day your spouse is going to stand before Christ and you're going to be responsible. Have you done everything you can do? You're not responsible for them coming to Christ or growing in Christ, but you are responsible as an individual follower of Christ to do everything and anything you can to help them grow in Christ and know who Christ is. So husbands, are you doing that? Is, that? is your why for loving and honoring your wife not just so that she'll be kind to you or do for you as this I scratch your back, you scratch mine thing, but just so you know, if your wife has an itchy back, scratch it because that will pay off later. She might actually scratch her back. So that's fine. But if you have an eternal perspective, it's so much great. The joy is so much more because you're realizing, God, this is tough right now to do this or to do that, but I'm driven by this perspective. Man, do your work at your job with an eternal perspective. This is for his glory, not my glory now, but his glory. And your company may acknowledge you and give you raises and you might get promoted and everything will be great. Or no one may notice. No one may care. You might get accused of doing wrong, get blamed by the coworkers for doing wrong, and then you have to ask yourself a question, am I going to keep doing what God has called me to do? To work for this person as though I'm working for Jesus Christ. Whether they treat me kindly or poorly. By the way, the Bible says the world, if, if somebody in the world that doesn't know Christ is treated kindly, they'll respond with, respond with kindness. That's just common sense. I mean, a follower of Christ, when treated unkindly, can respond, respond with kindness and love. And that's what we're talking about here. Everything changes when we choose an eternal perspective. Choices become easier and we will experience more joy. I want to close in just a moment in a word of prayer. And I really wanted this message to be, honestly, very, very simple this morning. Because I believe the whole point of today, this message this morning, is not to overcomplicate things or give you equations and steps and, you know, seven steps to a happier life and all that. And I believe the first thing we have to know is, do we know Christ as our Savior? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, maybe you've gone to church before, maybe you've grown up in church, maybe you were forced fed church as a child. Maybe you had a drug problem where your parents drug you to church Sunday morning and drug you to church Sunday night. You were just always there. And you know the Bible, man, you can quote it. You know all the stories. You know all that stuff. But if you were honest with yourself and you really looked inside, and let me warn you something, this is not easy stuff to do because it takes a lot of tough questions and even tougher answers. 
if you don't know Christ, man, you can know this book cover to cover and you will stand before him and he will say, I never knew you. I've said it before. One of the most concerning verses to me as a pastor is when Jesus said, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? And he's going to say, but I never knew you. See, that sounds like a lot of people that do the right what's, but never know why. They go to church, but there's no, no substance there. And this, it, it, it concerns me that Jesus says, many will say. Not some, not a couple, many. And they're surprised when they hear it. They aren't even aware they don't have that relationship. They think I'm doing all this, I'm good. Man, Jesus emphasized all throughout the Gospels. And all throughout the Holy Spirit's spoken words in the New Testament, we have letter after letter, that letter the apostles and, and Paul and all these, even Timothy, are ex- explaining to us as pastoral leadership. Listen, it matters the why. Do you know Christ? Have you personally received him as your Savior? Have you confessed your sins before him, believing he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again? And you have said an acknowledgement of all of that. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin. By the way, Jesus doesn't need your acceptance He's pretty confident in who he is. It's not like he's up there going, oh, please accept me. That's not my savior. He's saying, no, no, I love you so much. I've done everything for you. Will you just respond in faithfulness to what I've done? Will you repent? That's more of a, instead of maybe accept, repent of those sins. Turn to me. Trust in me. Put your life and your faith and everything in me. Surrender to me. I will save you. And then the amazing thing is he will guarantee you eternal life through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. You will never lose the salvation he gives to you. Because if you could do anything to lose it, you had to do something to earn it. But we know we don't earn it, so we can't lose it. It's all in his hands. So if you don't know Christ, maybe you would receive Christ today. But if you know Christ as a Christian today, maybe you'll start asking those questions. Why am I doing this? Why did I say that? Why do I want to say this? Why do I want to respond this way instead of that way? Am I acting on the situation or am I reacting to the situation? However God is leading in this, would you just respond in faithfulness to him? And I want to do this. We're going to bow in prayer. And we don't have any music to hear that to close the service out. So we're just going to bow in prayer. We're going to pray and spend just a few minutes with the Lord. And so if you would bow there, right there where you are, and then we'll dismiss you guys to get some food in just a moment. So I'll give you a few more announcements in just a minute. But would you just bow with me right there where you are and begin to ask God, God, give me wisdom in this. James chapter 1, verse 5 said, If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally or freely and he doesn't hold it back from us. So maybe you'd begin to pray, God, give me wisdom in my motives, why I do what I do, the heart behind this. Father, we thank you for this morning. But Lord, I I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you see the deepest part of our heart. We can fool so many people in this world. We can fool people under this tent, make people believe that we have this great relationship with God and that everything's good. But Father, we really don't have that relationship. It's pride that's driving that action. I'm trying to give that image. No, no, no. Other families have problems, but not this family, not our family. No, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. We put this image up, Lord. And I pray that we would never do that with you. That we would pull that image down, that wall down, 
and allow you to search us and to try us and to reveal if there be any wicked way in us that we would be able to, by your grace, repent of those things, turn to you, and find a renewal in that fellowship. And Father, for the Christians here today, the ones that know you as Savior, that have personally accepted you, I pray that they'd begin to understand that their motives matter. Father, we can do all the right things on the outside, but it matters so much more our motivation on the inside. But I thank you that when we abide in you, as you say in your word in John 15, by abiding in your word, that you will actually begin to change our hearts and change our minds. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that you renew or renovate the right thinking. Our hearts change, our desires change, our motivations change. And now when we pray, we pray with you in mind. We pray with your glory in mind. We pray according to your word and we ask you to do these things and you respond by doing those things because we're in alignment, we're in agreement with you. Our motivation, our heart is in line with you. But Father, I believe that's a lifelong journey. I pray that we would allow you to grow us and try us and to show us new things as far as our motivations and what needs to change. And Father, thank you for the joy that you give us when we respond to you in faith. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Savior, that right now, they're in their seats, Lord, they would repent of their sin, believe you died on the cross for them, receive you into their life by just repenting and turning to you and surrendering their life to you, Lord. Thank you for the, the cross. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for dying for our sins that when our good works couldn't do it, your grace provided a way. And I pray, Lord, that we would glorify you in all things. We lift you up, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as followers of Christ, we'd go out and we'd encourage others with us make disciples as you've led us to, to do and called us to do in this world. Father, thank you for all that you do. I pray you'd bless the remainder of this afternoon. We pray, Lord, you'd bless this food that we're about to partake in to the nourishment of our bodies. And again, Lord, we ask that all of this would be to your honor and to your fame. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before you guys are dismissed, um, what we're going to do is uh, just go ahead and we're just going to, we're just going to leave the chairs I don't want the food to get too cold and all that kind of stuff. So we're just going to leave the chairs. Um, once lunch is done, um, if anybody wants to help with the chairs, feel free to help with that. We'll do that afterwards. Um, so just kind of let us know. We'll be hanging out around here doing that later. Um, so here's what we're going to do. When you guys go back in the fellowship hall, uh, we're going to have you line up kind of coming into the hall or in the hallway, kind of coming into the fellowship hall. That way you kind of come into the doors just by the kitchen going out into the hallway. Okay. So you're going to line up there. Feel free to put your stuff down on the table or whatnot. Line up there. If you have little ones with you, we do ask that they would go through the line with their parents or grandparents. Um, and then obviously you guys are welcome to get your food. There's a dessert in there, drinks in there, all that kind of stuff. Feel free to hang out in fellowship. About 12.30, 12.45, we're going to get these things inflated, ready to go. Also, real quick, there's going to be a photo booth set up after lunch. If you want to get some family pictures done, some fun photos done, that'll be going on too. All right? You guys are dismissed. Thank you for being here. And uh, head on in there, grab some food.